You're listening to an excerpt from the Thompson Fields, composed by 2019 NEA Jazz Master Maria Schneider. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Maria Schneider has been stunning audiences for over three decades with her jazz-infused, highly original, and evocative orchestral compositions. Schneider's music is intimate, but it can also soar. It's intensely personal and often biographical, evoking the great Minnesota plains where she was raised. And while Schneider's home is firmly in jazz, she's also written classical work and collaborated with David Bowie on the Grammy award-winning song, Sue. Maria Schneider's unique voice quickly emerged when she started the Maria Schneider Jazz Orchestra in 1992. Her first album, Evanescence, issued that same year, gave notice that an important new composer had arrived, and her instrument was the orchestra. Maria and her orchestra then had a five-year-long weekly gig at Visiones in New York's Greenwich Village. There, Schneider honed her talents and her ideas in what amounted to an ongoing musical laboratory. Schneider still works with many of these same musicians today. Indeed, she often thinks of particular musicians as she composes her music. Maria Schneider is also a strong advocate for musicians' rights. She stopped working with traditional record labels in 2003 when she became the initial artist on Artist Share, the first crowdfunding web platform. The resulting album, Concert in the Garden, became the first Grammy-winning album to be crowdfunded and to have internet-only sales. Maria Schneider and the orchestra are in great demand around the world, and she tours regularly. Although she's lived in New York City for decades and travels the globe, home for this 2019 NEA Jazz Master remains the town of Wyndham in southwestern Minnesota. And her love for the place is clear when she's asked about her upbringing. Oh, it was great because it was a very small town. Wyndham, where I came from, Wyndham had, I think back then it was 3,666 people, which in the Bible Belt, that's 666. I remember it made an impact. But it was a great town, and I had a dance teacher. I took tap and ballet. At a certain point, we even had a little skating arena, a big skating arena, so I got to take skating, piano lessons. We had a band, we had a choir, we had a tiny, really awful little orchestra. But still, the opportunity to play violin with other people and make music was wonderful. And then we had the country, you know, being going out in the fields and playing and finding things in the dirt and at the lake and birds. And it was a great way to grow up. I love small towns. What music would you listen to at home? And did anybody play any instruments? How did music factor into your life growing up? I remember my first aha moment with music. We had a piano in our house, and my mom played Chopin actually quite well. But it was when I was five years old, they had, my parents had a birthday party for my father. And friends of theirs said, our mother just moved to town, can we bring her? Well, it turned out that this woman's mother, Evelyn Butler, was a stride pianist from Chicago, classical pianist too, extraordinary, and her only living family was this daughter in Wyndham. So she came to Wyndham to teach piano lessons. So that night, I heard her play, I saw her, the joy, the personality coming through the music, and I said, I wanna be her, I want that. 
and I begged for lessons. And from then on, music, you know, it was in me. Mrs. Butler introduced me to this whole world of the Great American Songbook, which also my mother was into. So I, I started falling in love with Cole Porter and all of these things and starting to create little stride piano arrangements out of those songs. Did you ever think about being a pianist? When I was studying with her, I dreamed of being just like her. I wanted to be a piano player and I would sit at home. Our house was on a hill with a field across the way and the highway down. It was very kind of surreal, open landscape, bleak, quite honestly. And I would sit and play piano and I would imagine that the cars going by had radios in them and that some of them were talent scouts and that they could hear and that they would, they would listen and then hear what I was doing and take me away. And I dreamed of being like Vladimir Horowitz or something like that. But then at a certain point, I realized I didn't have it in my hands. I would practice Mozart again and again and again. I could never get that feeling in me. So at a certain point, I said, I don't know that I can be a player. What am I? Because I know I have a musician's heart. I know I love music. I, I wanted to be a musician. And I dreamt of being a composer, but coming from a town like Wyndham, it, it seemed like too far of a goal. Like, who would I be to come from Wyndham, Minnesota and say I want to be a composer? So I hid that dream for a while. How did composing and then jazz begin to work its way into this picture? When I lived in Wyndham, the jazz I was exposed to was very old-style jazz. Teddy Wilson and old Ellington, those were the kind of things that I was oriented to. I honestly knew nothing about the whole development of jazz. We didn't have a record store in Wyndham. The records were sold in the clothing store. So I, the store, and the store was called the Wolf Store. So I went to college as a music theory major at, at the University of Minnesota. And there was a boy that heard me playing Old Ellington on my record player. And he knocked on my door and he said, you like jazz? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, I have a huge collection coming out to my room and I'll lend you some, some records. And so he gave me Herbie Hancock Headhunters. He gave me some Coltrane with McCoy Tyner. He gave me Mingus. So I brought these things back to my room, very naive, and I felt like I was shot out of a cannon into a whole new era. And then I started listening like crazy. And I went to the record store. On, on the radio, I heard Bill Evans. I bought Bill Evans albums. And I'm embarrassed to say the way I discovered Gil Evans is after I fell in love with Bill Evans, I went back to the E-bin at the record store and I saw Gil Evans and I said, well, maybe they're related. And then I started buying Gil Evans music and that's where my world exploded because suddenly it was the love of classical music with improvisation and the spirit of jazz. I heard such a natural mix. It wasn't like two things coming together that, that don't meld, but it was this obvious deep, deep love and understanding and immersion in both. Then I said, oh my gosh, this is my world.
The interest in orchestra and big band, where did, where did this come from? Because by the time you were coming along, this was fading just because economically it's so difficult. So when I was studying classical composition specifically at Minnesota, my teacher's name was Paul Fettler. And he heard so much jazz influence coming into my music and he didn't really know exactly what to do with me. And he, he did the best thing he could have done. He said, Maria, there's a big band at the school. Why don't you go watch them rehearse and write something for them? And the director of the band, his name was Dr. Frank Ben Crusciuto, invited me to start writing for the band. So I was just flailing, not really knowing what I was doing, taking lessons with a guy in the band because there wasn't a jazz program at the school. But the great thing was, is that I used my imagination. I didn't really know what I was doing, and I got to follow my own unorthodox path and find ways to make the things that I heard, forcing myself to make them work. And so I fell so in love with writing for a large jazz ensemble and for improvisers that then I went on to graduate school at Eastman School of Music, where I studied with this great teacher, Rayburn Wright, and I fell so in love with jazz composition and, you know, people like George Russell, Bob Brookmeyer, Gil Evans, all these people, you know, Mingus. And I said, this is the world I want. Also, there's one other story. Can I tell Absolutely. you one other story? I had an aha moment when I was at the University of Minnesota. Somebody invited me to a concert of Toshiko Akiyoshi and she was performing at Orchestra Hall where the Minnesota Orchestra performs. This is a classical music hall. And she brought her band from L.A. And I went to the concert and I absolutely loved it. And the thing that struck me was here was a person who was traveling with a big band, essentially, playing in a classical concert hall for a, almost a sold-out, if not sold-out, house. And I thought, wow. This is something you can do to make a living. And it gave me license to do it too. You began working with Gil Evans. How did that happen? You became his assistant. So from finding his album in a record bin and listening and saying, oh my God, how did you actually end up being his assistant? It's really crazy. I moved to New York after I finished graduate school and I had wanted to study with Gil Evans. But I was told by people that Gil doesn't teach and he's a little bit of a recluse. At a certain point, I, when I first came to New York, I worked as a music copyist in an office. And people would come in. We had big Xerox machines and I always had to do the Xeroxing of the scores. And um, a guy named Tom Pearson came in with a huge score and I Xeroxed it. We got talking about music. And he asked me who my favorite writers were. And I started going on about Gil Evans, saying everything I loved. And he called me that night and he said, I didn't tell you today, but Gil happens to be my closest friend. And I called him and told him about you. And he needs somebody to do work for him, copying and various things. And he wants to meet you. Can you imagine I, I was jumping up and down and twirling in circles. I was so excited. It was the impossible happened. It's incredible. There you are, your Gil Evans assistant. Tell me what that experience was like and, and what you learned with him. First of all, orchestrating for Gil Evans is 
something that's just something no mortal should do. But here I was in my 20s doing it. And he entrusted me. And I remember one time I brought this thing into him that I'd finished. And he recoiled. He was so horrified at what I'd written, which was textbook. It was exactly like I learned at Eastman. It, it was a textbook. And he said, no. Oh, my God, no, Maria. I want some of the high instruments going to the bottom of their range. And I want some of the low instruments going up out of their range so at the end everybody feels like they're struggling. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, what a free thinker. And no wonder Gill's music is just undeniably him. It can't be anybody else's. Those were the moments that made me say, I gotta start my own band because I need to find out what are my quirks. I wanna find out who I am. I wanna be as much Maria as Gill as Gill and Bob Brookmeyer as Bob. And because I was studying with Bob also. You got an apprenticeship from the National Endowment, Endowment for, for the Arts. Yeah, I, wonder, I got a wonderful apprenticeship grant to study with Bob. And I found out really what these people were made of. And it, it, it is pure individuality, personality, strong choices, choices about their own music that they are just sure about. It's amazing. Are you composing at this time? Yes. So I had come out of school with a compositional composition degree, and I was composing. At the time, I was studying with Bob. Um, I was working with him, developing my composition. He was an extraordinary teacher, amazing teacher. And I was learning so much by being with Gil at the same time. And I started writing the music in that period that ended up being the music on my first album, Evanescence. So here we are, it's 1992, and you decide, I'm doing my own band. What a leap of faith, that's an extraordinary thing to do. Yeah, I had saved up enough money through being a music copyist to start thinking about recording my own pieces. I had approached record companies about recording my band, and everybody said, oh, you know, no. <laughs> and um, so I just decided, okay, I'm gonna record this music and then see if I can sell it to somebody. And we caught a magic on that record. I still listen to that record and I'm amazed by the musicianship and what we managed to get. So I started shopping it and most people said no because they said they didn't know how to market me. Those were the days where you know you had to be able to sell something in a record store. But Enja Records in Europe picked it up and it, that was a label I really respected and loved. So I ended up on that label. They bought it for about a third of what I paid for it and I felt lucky 
just to have somebody put that out. And that got my name on the map. It sold very well. For a big band, it did really, really well. You and the orchestra then started appearing every week at Visiones. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about what that gave you in terms of your development, both as a composer and as a conductor, to be working with these people every week in a live event. That just strikes me as both terrifying and fabulous. I was offered a gig to perform weekly at Visiones in Greenwich Village, which was a great place because it had a low cover charge, had a lot of walk-by people, so those people would just come in on a whim to hear the band. And I was terrified when I first got the gig because I didn't have that much music, and I thought, playing every week, you know? And it went a couple of months, and then they said, let's continue. Well, it went for five years. But the extraordinary thing about it was, I think for the players, it was good because playing a lot of the same music week to week, slowly I was adding music, but it forced them to always try to find new things in the improvisation. Because there they are with players they respect. They can't play the same thing every night. They wouldn't want to play the same thing every night. And I think it pushed them. For me, I got to be with an ensemble that was playing my music on a steady basis. And they started developing ways collectively of phrasing my music. Not just things that I dictated, but things that they did on their own. And when I started hearing the phrasing possibilities, it made me start writing to that. And when I started hearing the, the different directions they would take solo sections, it occurred to me, wow, I can do something I didn't know I could do. So the way I think of it is that this gig, playing 50 some nights a year for five years, created a slow improvisation where I'm hearing them play my music I'm hearing what they do, and it's creating something unique in me to give something new back to them. They give me what I expect and ask for, but then they start morphing it and changing it, which brings something new out of me. And so I would say, if I had been working with different musicians, I would be a different composer. I'm not the kind of composer that sits at home, writes in isolation, goes and works with an ensemble somewhere of people I've never met, and then I go somewhere else with other people. No, these are people that I get to develop the music with. And so they are just such an intimate part of who I am as a composer. So I'm just eternally grateful to all of them. And there have been changes throughout the years, but they all, I carry a piece of all of them in my music. And how do you compose? Tell me your process for writing. When I write, I sit here and I grope. <laughs> I, I grope through my brain, sometimes I play, you know, I'm just looking for ideas. In music, I'm looking for a personality, something, not just something that sounds good or sounds cool, but something that all of a sudden takes me somewhere, a lot of times to a place, a place from childhood. It might be a certain landscape or a certain story and, or an idea. I'm looking for something that takes me away. And when I find myself playing something and all of a sudden I find myself daydreaming and attaching something to that idea, then I start getting excited because then I can use that idea, the, the experience or the story or whatever it's attaching itself to, to help me develop the piece. Sometimes there are pieces that are just purely music, but a lot of times the Thompson Fields is a recollection of 
wind of Minnesota and the landscape, the prairie landscape, scenes from childhood, bomb shelter beast is recalling the fear, you know, of the air raid sirens, the tornadoes, all the various fear aspects of childhood, of monsters and nuclear war. What about the orchestration? Does that come in pretty early on with the writing? When does that factor in? Even back when I was a kid, I would listen to records. And I remember thinking, I, I loved orchestration so much. And I remember thinking, oh, you put a flute there or something here. I wouldn't have done that. I might have done this. I remember thinking that way back when, just loving orchestration. And to this day, Orchestration is always a part, the color, the colors are in me when I'm coming up with the ideas. I never come up with a musical idea on its own and then say, okay, now I'm gonna put the band on it. And there are different writers. Bob Brookmeyer was much more that way. The intricacy of the development and the lines and then putting the different horns on it as a section. But I'm always hearing the color well, I can't even write the harmony unless I'm imagining the color because I would pick different harmony if I was imagining a different color. So it's, it's, it's always there. That's just a part of me and that's something I've loved, yes. How do you then teach your compositions to the musicians in your band? How do you introduce them to it and how much space are you leaving for them? So the problem is I don't want to come into a rehearsal of saying, Okay, guys, this is the window and Hope Bogle and when you play, I want to sound like Hope, you know. If I come to my guys like that or I really want you to be like this bird, you know, I'm sorry, that's a turnoff. You know, they, they might think I'm crazy. So I try to get them partly there and get them to hear the music and sort of hear it. And then I wait for the moment when I start telling the audience what it's about. Because now I'm not saying, I want you to be a bird. I'm saying to the audience, you know, this is a piece that's evocative of these birds. And now he has to get up and play. He needs to be the bird without me telling him how to be the bird. And I can't even tell him how to be the bird. But it's his own interpretation to make it something and make it different every night. You, you have it in the music. You, you describe it. But then you have to let them find it. They have to find it for themselves and and connect it to themselves to make it truly happen. Well, you really did that with the Thompson Field Arbiters of Evolution. You had Scott Robinson and you had Donnie McClusson. Oh yeah, yeah. Talk about sounding like birds. That was amazing. Yes, I, 
I'm fortunate, so fortunate, that I'm with musicians that trust me and I trust them. And the, the hardest part is just getting through that, that period when we don't quite mutually get it. And the hardest part for me is to trust in my first vision and just to say, Maria, you heard it, it's there. I'm getting better at that. In the beginning, I, it wouldn't be there right away and I'd think, oh my God, I'm horrible. I don't know how to write. This is a disaster and I'm, I'm a loser. You know, so, but then, but I'm getting to the point now where I'm like, I'm feeling, I've been through this many times before. Trust your instinct, instincts. Maybe you have to make some tweaks. Go through it step by step. Soon enough, they're all going to hear it. And once they get an inkling of what it is, then now they all know what they're reaching for. And it's so fun when, I, when I'm conducting the band and I feel like I'm on top of that Thompson silo in a performance and I'm feeling it I'm just I'm thinking wow this is crazy how does this happen I don't even know how it happens it's a mystery is conducting the fun part and writing the anxiety producing part or is God knows being in front of a live audience can bring its own challenges absolutely the challenging part is the writing and then the second most challenging part is the first rehearsals, getting through the self-doubt, trusting that my instincts were there, that maybe there are things to, to tweak, but that trusting myself and not doubting and moving ahead. Those are the biggest hurdles. What about when you're writing commissioned work? Is that different for you? I hate commissions. I shouldn't say that because after you after one completes a work, then you love the commission. But the process, the, the thing of somebody paying you to write something and having an, an expectation, what's she gonna write for us? And I'm thinking, oh, what if they hate it? What if it's no good? What if I come up, I have no more ideas? What if it's, it's over? What if it's a disaster? And that's really a problem for me. But I, I had a, Really great lesson. The best part for me about working with David Bowie was, and it happened right here in this spot. He was standing right here in front of me, and I think of it all the time because I was so scared when we were working together, and I said, David, what if you don't like it? What if we spend all this time and this money right, recording this big band thing and you hate it? And he just laughed, and he said, Maria, the great thing about music is if the plane goes down, we all walk away. That single statement that he made right here has helped me when I'm turning around and facing the piano and writing on my writing board to just say, oh, let's try this. What, what's to lose? Let's risk it. And I'm so thankful for that. He was like an angel that came with that right message for me. How did you and David Bowie get together? He, he contacted me out of the blue. He had come to hear the band before and he liked the music and he contacted me out of the blue. His first love in music was jazz. So David followed things and somehow he found his way to my music, thankfully, because that was one of the more fun things I've done in my life. I, I really love what we created together. I really love it. What was the process of working together? It was very, um, very back and forth. It was really fun. We had a couple of rehearsal sessions with a few of the musicians from my band 
to test things out, to really hear them. And then at the very end, he, he had lyrics, and right before the recording, he came in with new lyrics that were very dark and wonderful. <laughs> and that was Sue. That was Sue. Sue, I found your note. Well, he won a Grammy for Best Arrangement, so yeah, so that was, that was nice. So the plane didn't go down. Concert in the Garden is another Grammy Award winner, and the first to win a Grammy with online sales only. Tell me about that record and explain artist share and how that works and how it works for you. So let's see, it was 1998 when Google formed and then we started having things like Napster and people's ability to start searching music and getting it for free, this sort of free-for-all with music. It started really wreaking havoc in the music business. And a friend of mine said, Maria, what's the one thing nobody can file share? And I said, I don't know. And he said, the creative process. He said, what if I create a platform where you announce that you're going to make a record, you document the process of making your record, we pre-sell it, people can come in at different levels, and we eliminate all the middlemen, the record store, everything. We sell directly to the fan on the internet, and there will be no anonymous sales. You will know every person who buys your music, so you can develop a relationship, and then when you do your next project, you write to all those same people. So we did it with Concert in the Garden, and it did very, very well. And, and I've never turned back. I'm still doing it to this day. are getting really tough now with streaming. Streaming is a whole new ball game. People don't even buy CDs anymore. People don't even want downloads anymore. So it's going to be interesting to see how this is going to play out in the future and what's going to happen when I do this next project. We, we will see. You've been playing Thanksgiving at the Jazz Standard since 2005. Which is, is that right, 2005, or is it? I, I don't know, is that, it's, they told me it's 14 years. Is that 14 years? Yeah, it's a long time. I want you to describe the jazz standard, the club, because I saw you one Thanksgiving where the accordionist was sitting in a booth. I mean, that's how small the place was. The jazz standard is, is a small club, but it's a wonderful club. They treat everybody great. The audience is really close to the band. And my experience over the years is that when the audience is in close proximity to the band, it makes them play well, when they can see the faces, because it truly is a communicative art, and that makes a tremendous difference. So the band always plays well there. It's fun. It's like a reunion every year. 
and it's become I think this is our 14th year or something doing it so it's yeah it's great is there any one concert that you've done that really stands out for you that you can describe I can describe maybe one of the most joyous nights of making music with my band was playing in my hometown for the first time because so much of my music is autobiographical so sitting there were my parents and so many people who knew the pretty road sitting there were the Thompson family I hadn't even done the Thompson Fields record but I'd written a piece called coming about about sailing with the Thompsons inspired by those people and when I would talk about the music and the pretty road you'd see everybody nodding remember remembering the pretty road and just embracing the music and realizing that my whole world of music that I've come to the whole foundation is in that hometown there was so much support I was allowed to have every dream I had the support I had great mentors I had great friends, great, a great sense of um, community support. I was lucky. I had a great family who, in a small town with a record store that isn't a record store but just a bin in a clothing store, that my mother exposed me to the arts and my, both my parents to the outdoors. I don't make music about music. To me, music is an expression of life, and music is just the conduit. And I am still expressing things from my childhood because to me there was so much magic there. Not that every, everything was magic and great, but there was so much alive there. And there's plenty of material there to keep me inspired for a lifetime. That's 2019 NEA Jazz Master, composer, conductor, and arranger, Maria Schneider. Maria Schneider and the other 2019 NEA Jazz Masters will be honored at a free concert at the Kennedy Center on April 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern. If you can't be in Washington, D.C., don't despair. We're streaming it live. Go to arts.gov for all details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcast. And leave us a rating on Apple. It helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.